You're listening to a Soulfire Productions podcast. Welcome to Wellness Realness, where we get very real about all things health and wellness, physical, mental, financial, and spiritual. I'm your host, Christina Rice, a nutritional therapy practitioner and energy healer turned holistic business coach for ambitious entrepreneurs. And I'm here to help you up-level every aspect of your life. Remember my disclaimer, the information in this podcast is general health and nutrition advice and not a replacement for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You can find an endless amount of content from me and join my online membership at christinaricewellness.com. And if you want exclusive behind-the-scenes content and my most unfiltered self, DM a screenshot of your iTunes rating and review to Wellness Realness Crew on Instagram and request to follow my super secret account. You can also join the Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe Facebook group to hang out with other listeners in the crew. Get ready for some wellness realness. I am so excited for you to hear today's episode with Dr. Jamie Seaman. Many of you might know her on Instagram as Dr. Fit and Fabulous, and she certainly is fit and fabulous. She is a board certified OBGYN. She's currently in private practice and she's also a board certified ketogenic nutrition specialist. She provides a ton of education around preventative medicine, ketogenic therapy, fitness, women's hormones, and is honestly just a total badass. I think her perspective is really unique because she is an OBGYN. She has seen so many patients focusing on women's health and specializes in ketogenic therapy and has her background as an athlete and provides a lot of education around why women shouldn't be afraid to get stronger and why that's so beneficial. And I really wanted her today to speak to some of the concerns people have around low-carbohydrate diets and women's hormones. And this is especially interesting because we're not even just talking about, well, we are talking about women's hormones in general, but Dr. Seaman has obviously a ton of experience working with women who are pregnant or trying to become pregnant. And I know a lot of people have questions about that and low-carbohydrate diets. But we talk all things women's hormones in this episode. You're probably going to want to take notes. She gives such incredible information, and I'm so grateful she was able to come on the show and share this knowledge. You guys have to go follow her on Instagram if you don't already. She is incredible, and I'm really excited for you to learn more. So enjoy this episode with Dr. Jamie Seaman. Wearing blue light blocking glasses is one of the easiest biohacks you can introduce into your life to support your sleep, to balance out your hormones, to improve your mood, and to improve your energy levels. And that's why I really want to share with you my favorite blue blocker company, Blue Blocks. I've tried so many different types of blue light blocking glasses over the years, and these by far give the best results because they are 100% backed by the science. Orange lenses are only blocking a part of the blue and green light spectrum that disrupts our circadian rhythm, which in turn causes health issues. But Blue Blocks has red lenses, their Sleep Plus red lens, that are tested to make sure they're blocking that full spectrum so that you get better sleep, deeper sleep, less anxiety, and ultimate relaxation. I like to wear my Sleep Plus red lens with the Parker frame as soon as the sun goes down. And then during the day, I wear the blue light clear lens, which is a blue light filtering lens for the daytime, best for people who work in more natural lighting. 
but if you work in more artificial lighting or you struggle with seasonal depression, I would recommend the Summer Glow Yellow Lens. These daytime glasses will help reduce migraines, headaches, macular degeneration, and digital eye strain, which is super important if you're on a screen all day. Like me, I notice that my head hurts, I feel foggy, I get moody, I'm just really cranky if I don't wear my blue light clear lens. They have about 20 different frames to pick from, so you'll definitely find something that you like. I get compliments on these glasses all the time, and you can also send in your own frames or use their custom-made prescription service if you'd like something a little bit more customized. And if you really want to amp up your sleep game, check out their Remedy Sleep Mask, which is a 100% light-blocking sleep mask. This has changed the game for me. And for every pair of glasses they sell, Blue Box will donate a pair of reading glasses to Restoring Vision, who gifts them to someone in need. So if you want to get your hands on the best blue light blockers on the market, just go to blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. And use my code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S for 15% off. Again, that's blueblocks.com, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. And my code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S will get you 15% off. When you use these every day, trust me, you'll notice a huge improvement in your productivity, your mood, your energy, and of course, your sleep. Dr. Jamie Seaman, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I have been so excited to chat with you today. I have so many questions for you. I love following your content and I love the work you put out there. But for people who aren't familiar with you yet, can you just tell my audience a little bit about you and what you do? Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. First of all, my name is Dr. Jamie Seaman and I am a board certified obstetrician and gynecologist and I work in private practice at an OBGYN practice in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I'm also a current fellow in integrative medicine through the University of Arizona, and I'll be finishing up that fellowship this next year, and have a very special interest in ketogenic therapies. I'm a board-certified ketogenic nutrition specialist and work with a lot of my patients um, with therapeutic ketosis. But in my personal life, I'm married and a mom of three little girls. I have three daughters that are four, six, and eight. And I was a former college athlete with a background in nutrition, but actually kind of came into this space accidentally, kind of on my own journey to fixing my, my health. So tell me a little bit more about that. So growing up, I was an athlete and I was super busy and physically active and I got away with eating like what I would consider poorly. I, uh, my mom worked lots of hours growing up and we ate a lot of food outside of our home and then I went to college. I played softball for the University of Nebraska. And there, you know, we have all, we have a nutritionist and we have all these things at our expense. And I kind of knew how to eat healthy. I was getting a nutrition degree and, and my nutrition was okay while I was in college. And then I graduated college and went to medical school. And that was like a huge physical slowdown in my life, going from being a collegiate athlete to now I'm sitting in the library for you know, hours upon hours of time studying in medical school. So that just physically was, was a change. And my eating habits kind of slid with that, with that physical change. And then I decided to uh, pursue pregnancy. My husband and I had our first daughter when I was a medical student. And I went on to have basically three pregnancies in 60 months, which wow. <laughs> um, is, is quite a toll on a woman's body. And really, if you want, you know, the greatest physiologic test of time, it's, it's during pregnancy. And so if you are predisposed to things like insulin resistance and cardiovascular disease, sometimes these things can really 
actually show up in pregnancy. And so I failed my glucose testing. We do a screen for diabetes because pregnancy is an insulin resistant state. And we can totally dive into that because I love talking about that. But I, you know, I finished my third pregnancy. I had a really horrible tragedy happened in my life. I lost one of my best friends actually in the middle of her pregnancy and just kind of had this awakening, like a totally different purpose, a different passion for life. And I went to an annual exam with my doctor and I found out I had prediabetes. And that was a very rude awakening as a medical provider, not only a medical provider, but an OBGYN with a nutrition degree and an exercise science degree. And I'm the one that should know everything, right? And I'm at this like desperate point in my life where I, you know, I was like ordering weight loss shakes off my Facebook feed. I mean, I was desperate. Mm-hmm. I was just like anybody else. And so for any mom out there listening, like I, I get it when you're kind of stuck in that rut of life. And I had these three little kids. And so my husband and I really set out on fixing our health. And we've kind of started with a full 30 approach and then a paleo approach. And then we finally settled on the ketogenic diet. And now we eat a little bit more like what I would call carnivore ish. <laughs> it's not like a total carnivore diet. It's, it's still kind of ketogenic. We do eat some plants, but we have, we have now found like the greatest health and wellness and what's really transformed in my life. You know, it started with just my diet, but it's been amazing because it's just literally shifted everything in my world, the way that I, you know, work in my job, the way I work as a mom, the way I work as a wife, it's just the, the weight loss and body composition and things like that were great, but it's just been like this mental, like internal awakening for me um, to finally feel like I'm firing on all the right cylinders. And so I've really kind of taken that personal approach. I always say I'm as human as my patients. And I think as medical providers, we should kind of walk the walk and talk the talk. And um, I just try to be an example for my patients, and I, I definitely use low carbon ketogenic therapies in my practice because, just like me, about eighty eight percent of the people in the United States of America have abnormal metabolic markers. So it's not just about weight loss, but it's really about optimal metabolic health. Is what it's about. Yeah, and I love your perspective as an OBGYN in the keto carnivore space, and I think a lot of people have questions. I get questions from listeners all the time about if keto is safe for X, Y, and Z, this type of woman, that type of woman. So I'm really excited for you to kind of shed some light on, on your, your opinion on that um, or yeah. the facts. So let's talk about pregnancy itself. And you were saying before that you love talking about, I mean, let's talk about pregnancy and how that affects insulin regulation. Right. So pregnancy is an insulin resistant state by design. So basically the body's job during pregnancy is to grow uh, this little baby right inside your tummy. And so it has to figure out a way to continually shunt nutrients across the placenta um, to this growing fetus. And so the placenta is an organ, right, that we only have during pregnancy. And that placenta excretes a lot of hormones that help create this insulin resistance, which for the baby is a good thing. But for the mom, it can cause a lot of problems. So I always say like the placenta is is team fetus, it's team baby. And so if you come into a pregnancy with pre-existing insulin resistance, that could be a really, really, really bad thing. Um, now it's it's different depending on what stage of pregnancy you're talking about. So let's go through just kind of some of the basic changes that happen when the woman gets pregnant. So 
immediately when a woman gets a positive pregnancy test in that, that first trimester, the first, what we'll consider to be like the first 12 weeks of pregnancy, this is a time where the, the mom is actually trying to store as much fat as possible. So we call this um, an anabolic state. And the pancreas, which secretes the hormone insulin, immediately starts increasing production of insulin by about 30%. So what I want people to understand who are listening is that even if a woman has normal blood sugars in pregnancy, we always have to be thinking at the cost of what amount of insulin are her blood sugars normal because you can have normal blood sugars, you can have a normal hemoglobin A1C, but you might be secreting a ton of insulin to make those blood sugars normal. And, and that can be a huge problem in pregnancy and I'll talk about why. But basically, there's a lowered threshold in this first trimester for even just insulin secretion and production. So you eating a bag of Skittles not pregnant versus eating a bag of Skittles in the first trimester of pregnancy, you're going to get an extremely robust insulin response. Now, the insulin sensitivity is increased in the first trimester. So this is a common time. I have like the most keto carnivore of patients who will get pregnant and in the first trimester, they are like, what is happening? I'm, I have meat aversion. I can't, like all I yeah. want to eat is carbs. I feel horrible. So um, if ketosis is going to kill human babies, um, nobody would make it through the first trimester because <laughs> for a lot of women, this is a very, I mean, it's just survival sometimes with you know the amount of nausea and, and, um, and lack of appetite and fatigue. So basically, in the first trimester, there is some insulin sensitivity. So this isn't where I'm, you know, hammering down on my patients about their diet. This is where we have a little bit more leeway. Um, but this is a time that the mom is storing a lot of glycogen and storing a lot of uh, fat in this kind of first trimester. Then what happens is the placenta starts to take over. So after the first trimester, the placenta has grown. Um, it's functioning as an organ to supply this baby with all the nutrients and oxygen and things that it needs. And so in the second half of pregnancy, um, the mom's body actually becomes quite what we call catabolic, meaning it's breaking down. And during the second half of pregnancy, it's very normal for a pregnant woman to have ketones in the bloodstream and to have glucose. So we see this rise in insulin resistance that happens and a rise in leptin resistance, and that helps maintain the mom's appetite, which is kind of where the you know idea of like pregnant women having food cravings and wanting to eat all the time. And I can tell you that was definitely true in my pregnancy, not necessarily cravings, but I think kind of there's this, you know, misconception that pregnancy is a time for you to just, you know, eat ice cream every night, you're growing a baby, you eat whatever you want. And that's definitely not the time to do that. Because this insulin resistance can cause a lot of problems because the normal insulin um, can increase the risk of hypertensive disorders, so like gestational hypertension and preeclampsia. And then, of course, when the blood sugars become abnormal, then we call that gestational diabetes. And so what's happening is the baby does start to adapt to some of these changes. But basically, we've done studies where we've looked at babies at birth, and babies actually utilize ketones quite readily. So being born into like a ketogenic state is very physiologic. It's not pathologic by, mm -hmm. by any means. But this high insulin could be a, a huge problem for a baby because if a baby is born to a mom that has excessive amounts of insulin, it increases the risk of that baby being admitted to the NICU, being large for gestational age, meaning like weighing more than it's supposed to. 
And if it develops low blood sugars after pregnancy, that can increase a lot of oxidative stress and brain damage, especially if that baby's premature. Also, inside the mom's tummy, high blood glucose in the first trimester especially, this is why it's a big deal if you're coming into pregnancy in an insulin-resistant state, it can actually cause birth defects. So high blood glucose can cause everything from problems with the kidneys to congenital heart defects, which is the number one birth defect in the United States, can cause problems with the spine and the brain. So it's a big, big, big deal when we talk about what fuel sources a pregnant woman is utilizing to to, feed her growing baby. And then the, the common question that I get, you know, being in this space is, well, is it safe for a pregnant woman to eat a low carb diet in pregnancy? Because when we look at the current recommendations for pregnant women. The Institute of Medicine, you know, has kind of said that we shouldn't allow a pregnant woman to eat less than 175 carbs in, in <laughs> pregnancy. And, you know, if we look at the standard American diet, you know, that would be consuming maybe somewhere between 250 and 450, right? I mean, there really are some women that are consuming that level of, of carbs. Mm. So where do we come up, you know, with this number of 175? Well, it's interesting. So, you know, basically they looked at an adult and how much glucose do we need at minimum to supply organ systems like our brain, our red blood cells and certain parts of our kidney that can only utilize glucose. And that number is probably somewhere between 70 and 90 grams. And then they always do, when you do statistics, you always take two standard deviations. So when we do, you know, statistically two standard deviations, that's about 130 grams of carbs. And then you have a fetus that's inside her belly. So that baby's brain is probably using 20 to 25. And then because the woman is pregnant and she needs an extra percentage of calories, they just, you know, like tack on another 30. So I call it bad math, but basically (laughs) they came up with this, this 175 and it's not necessarily, you know been studied or anything like that. But what's also funny is the same people that say we shouldn't do less than 175 carbs back in 2002, basically said that the lower limit of dietary carbs that's compatible with human life is zero, as long as you're consuming adequate protein and fat. Mm. So when we look, you know, ancestrally, what did pregnant women eat, right? Before there was McDonald's and Starbucks and all this readily available, you know, processed stuff. And they ate animal foods that were very nutrient dense. They ate beef and they ate organ meats and they made, you know, ate eggs and they drank raw milk. And when you think about what it takes to, you know, build a human, right? We're built from amino acids. We certainly need protein in pregnancy and the protein needs in pregnancy are higher than they are outside of pregnancy. And as a women's health specialist, it's very common to see women that underconsume protein. And so that is a big one is, is pregnant patients need to be getting adequate protein. And the Institute of Medicine has never defined an intake level where there's potential adverse effects with protein. So basically they're saying, we've never seen a woman who ate too much protein in pregnancy. <laughs> and then when you look at fat, our hormones are literally made from cholesterol and fat, our, our sex hormones are. And we definitely have a lot more of those in pregnancy. And then when we look at your baby and your baby's brain development, fat is extremely important for neurological development. Um, Ketones are important for that as well. But once again, the Institute of Medicine has also said that there's really no defined intake at which potential adverse effects of fat have been identified. And we've really vilified fat for a long time 
um, in the face of replacing it with carbohydrates in the diet. And that was a huge mistake. So when I look at an optimal diet for a pregnant woman, I prefer them to be eating lots of protein and lots of fat and only eating carbohydrates to the threshold at which they can keep their blood sugars normal. So if they have good insulin sensitivity and they want to eat whole food carbs like vegetables and potatoes and tubers and things like that, fruit, I'm totally fine with that. But that definitely doesn't mean ultra processed carbs like wheat thins and goldfish and, mm-hmm. and ice cream and those types of things, right? And sugar. Um, but there are women who come in in an insulin resistant state and they really should not be eating at 175 grams of carbs. I mean, there are really women, especially with gestational diabetes that need to eat at a much lower, lower threshold than that. And so we really need to be kind of looking at this. And there have been some large trials looking at women who like pass their glucose testing and, and still have adverse effects of hyperinsulinemia in pregnancy. And so we're missing a large proportion of women in pregnancy. And the unfortunate part is our healthcare providers are not well-versed in this. And it's, Mm -hmm. nobody wants to give a, everybody's afraid of pregnant people, right? Because (laughs) um, it's like, it's unethical to study pregnant women. It's unethical to tell a woman, okay, how about you eat 10 carbs and then let's see what happens to your baby, right? So a lot of the information that we have is, is, you know, observational um, and case reports and things like that. But I can tell you that um, I support women in having healthy pregnancies, and sometimes that means eating a low-carb diet. And I, in my clinical experience, have, have never seen adverse outcomes from that. They've all had very healthy pregnancies. Um, and I can control almost all of my gestational diabetics with dietary intervention. And giving a pregnant woman with gestational diabetes more insulin is, is, doing, is doing more harm. And that's the first line therapy, according to ACOG, is to give the patient insulin. So it's, it's a scary time. And the reason that it's kind of scary is that there's this idea of what we call epigenetics, meaning what a mom eats in pregnancy literally influences her baby's DNA and it influences the health outcomes of her baby. You know, so we're talking about health for generations to come. So, you know, <laughs> pregnancy nutrition is a big, big deal. The way a mom eats in pregnancy, you know, literally could be affecting her grandchildren and her great grandchildren. So it's something that we, we really need to be supporting women in, especially the ones that are very motivated because that's, that's not, you know, super common in, in medicine either. Yeah. I'm curious how the information you put out there is received by your colleagues and other OBGYNs. Like, do you get a lot of pushback from people? Yeah. You know, they're, you know, in my community, especially, um, we kind of have this dance going on between medical providers and between registered dietitians, especially in the ketogenic space, because, you know, traditionally a lot of nutritionists and dietitians have not been super supportive of low carbon ketogenic therapies. And then we have this growing body of evidence from, you know, Verta Health and all these other, you know, studies that are coming out. And, and finally, 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 we're seeing, you know, some support from the American Diabetes Association and, and some of these governing bodies. But, you know, as a, as a medical provider, I have a little bit of a unique background, you know, in nutrition, and I'm a, I'm a certified ketogenic specialist, but that is not, I mean, that's very unique to me. That's not common in my, in my world. So when I first started using this with patients, people, people thought I was crazy. Um, <laughs> but I think results speak and that's the important part is, um, you know, the decisions that I make in the exam room are between myself and my patient. And I tell patients, listen, 
you didn't come in here asking me permission to eat cheeseburgers and ice cream. So why do you feel like you have to ask permission to eat a low carb diet? Right. It's like, yeah. uh, you know, you don't need anybody's permission to, to do this, but um, I do think that people, I mean, especially pregnant women, I mean, they really should be working with somebody that knows what they're doing and, and what they're talking about, because I mean, we can see, you know, electrolyte disturbances and things like that. If people suddenly decrease carb intake and they're not getting enough sodium and things like that. So, I mean, there are some nuances that people need to to understand. So we just, we really just need more educated providers. And what I'm really finding honestly is that consumers and patients, they're becoming becoming educated too. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're all learning, we're all learning from each other. I learn from my patients every day. So we just have to be patient. We have to be patient. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone who's a genius was called crazy at first, so it's fine. <laughs> yes. Yes. hundred percent. I, I would like to look at women of reproductive age in general, like pregnancy aside. So just because I know that's most of my audience. Um, and I think there's a lot of fear in that population of, you know, going too low carb or even carnivore and how that's going to affect your period. And, you know, a lot of people find quote information on the internet that if they go too low carb, they'll lose their, their periods. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that and the science behind whether or not that is true. Right. Right. That is a great question that you bring up because I do think that women are different than men. (laughs) We obviously are complex biological creatures, right? This is why it's hard to study women because we're always in, in a different hormonal state, you know, from one day to the next day to the, to the next week. And so let's talk a little bit about what you're talking about is these women who have gone through puberty, right. And they're in their years of what we call fertility. Mm-hmm. And when you're in your age of fertility, you should be having regular menstrual cycles. Menstrual cycles to me are like another vital sign. Just like I check a patient's blood pressure and pulse and temperature. I want to know, is this woman having normal menstrual cycles? Because that tells me that her brain is in sync with her ovaries and her body is telling me that this is a great time for her to reproduce. If you do not have a normal menstrual cycle, your body is telling you this is not a good time to get pregnant. And so it will basically not ovulate because it is trying to protect itself, right? Your body's job is to perpetuate its DNA for all time. So it wants to get you pregnant and grow a healthy baby. So when we see either absence of menstrual cycle or dysregulation, it's telling me that there is something that's not right. Now, everybody loves to like use this word hormones, like it's got to be my hormones, my hormones are out of whack. And it's a little more complex than just hormones because our hormones are affected not only by our nutrition, so the food we put inside of our bodies, but it's affected by our sleep. How much sleep are we getting? Are we getting restful, restorative sleep? What is our stress like? What is our environmental stress? How are we responding to emotional stress? Um, Environmental exposure. What is our exposure to things like plastics and phthalates and cosmetics and other things that cause endocrine disruption? And then exercise. How do we move our bodies? Are we overtraining? Are we undertraining? Are we exercising at all? So when I talk to patients about, you know, when they come in and say, I need to balance, I need you to balance my hormones. It's not as simple as just working on your diet. It's working on really all five of these things. I kind of view all five of those things as pieces to the puzzle. And for me, that's nutrition, sleep, stress, environment, and exercise. So let's talk a little bit about the menstrual cycle. I just want to get back to that just a little bit because Mm -hmm. I want women to kind of understand what's happening at different phases of the menstrual cycle, because you will experience like a different response to 
diet and training during different parts of the menstrual cycle. So let's break the menstrual cycle up into, let's call it, um, well, the first phase is called follicular phase and the second half is called luteal phase. But what I want women to hear is that in the first two weeks of your menstrual cycle and your menstrual cycle starts on the first day of bleeding. So the first day you start bleeding, that's day number one. So basically let's pretend that in a perfect world, your menstrual cycle is 28 days. So cycle days one through 14, your body is stimulating the ovaries to get an egg ready. And that ovary is making a ton of estrogen. So the dominant hormone in the first half of your cycle is estrogen. In the first half of your cycle, you actually have a little bit higher insulin sensitivity, okay? Um, you're using glucose um, at rest, and you're really only using fat oxidation during exercise. Um, your hunger is less, so you're not experiencing a lot of cravings. You're able to recover from exercise quite well. This is a great time to grow your muscles. So the first half of your cycle is a great time to really hit resistance training really hard. Then what happens is you ovulate. And after you ovulate that egg from the ovary, somewhere around cycle day 14, you start secreting a lot of progesterone. And progesterone is a hormone that basically supports a potential pregnancy or, or a woman is pregnant. It, so it supports pregnancy or potential pregnancy. When you have high amounts of progesterone and the estrogen starts going lower, your insulin sensitivity is a lot lower. You start to use more fat oxidation at rest and during exercise, you're oxidizing a lot of fat and your metabolic rate is actually increased. So even though your insulin sensitivity goes down just a little bit, your basal metabolic rate is actually increased in some studies anywhere from like 100 to 300 calories. But your hunger is a lot higher and your blood sugars become way unstable and in the very late phase, like right before the next menstrual cycle is when women get more water retention and bloating and they just, they feel kind of awful. And so what women need to know is this is a time where you're going to have more cravings. You're not going to recover from things like high intensity interval training. So you kind of have to look at like where you are in your menstrual cycle, because when women kind of become in tune with their bodies, when they know what's happening inside their bodies. It's not that we can stop that process from happening, right? This is a very normal, natural process. But women at least can kind of acknowledge, okay, I'm cycle day 23 today. I feel a little puffy. It's okay. I just got to, you know, stick with my diet and, and get through my menstrual cycle and things will flop back the other way <laughs> in, in a week or two. And so I think once women kind of start to learn how to listen to their bodies, I think they almost start to respect it more instead of feeling like, oh, my body is like revolting against me. You know, my hormones are out of whack. This is a very, very, very normal cycle. What I'm, what I'm describing to you is a normal menstrual cycle. You are going to have fluctuations in your weight. You're going to have fluctuations in your insulin sensitivity. So I want people to kind of just understand what's going on there. Now, the most common what I would call like hormonal problem that I encounter in my practice is what I call estrogen dominance. And this is basically where women are not ovulating regularly, or they're not making good amounts of progesterone from their ovulation, and they have a lot more estrogen than they have progesterone. And estrogen dominance um, not only affects women in their fertility years, but um, it affects women in perimenopause and menopause as well. And 
excessive amounts of estrogen can cause a lot of symptoms. Um, PCOS is a state of estrogen excess. Um, but um, other things like just heavy periods can be caused by excessive amounts of estrogen. And there's two different ways in which we can get excessive estrogen. One is either that we make too much estrogen and we make excessive amounts of estrogen either by heavy alcohol use, being obese, having a lot of inflammation or insulin resistance. Um, and then the second way is just lack of progesterone, right? So we're not making it too much estrogen. We just don't have any progesterone to balance it. And these, this is what I encounter mostly in these women who are in these fertility years. And by doing these other interventions, including diet, um, a lot of times we can bring those things back into balance. We really, I, I can, women can start to have normal cycles. They start to menstruate more regularly. And once again, that menstrual cycle is like a vital sign. Gotcha. So what about, I mean, so in the paleo space, a lot, there are a lot of practitioners who say that for women who are missing their periods, that they need to have a certain amount of carbohydrates um, in their diets to get it back. What do you think about that? Yeah. So if you do not have a menstrual cycle, there is a stress that is happening to your body and your body is saying, this is not a good time to get pregnant. Now, a lot of people will say, okay, well, you need to add you know, more carbs in. It's very patient specific. In the ketogenic world, I've really seen absence of the menstrual cycle really in two situations. One is that sometimes patients get to a too low of a body fat and their estrogen gets so low that they're not stimulating the lining of their uterus. And the other one is where the change in lifestyle has become very stressful on the body and the body is not ovulating. And sometimes in these situations, adding carbs back in can help, but it's very patient specific. You have to test, you have to see what the estrogen level is. You have to see what the follicle stimulating levels are, and you have to figure out why the period is not there to begin with. So just a simple, you know, idea of, well, add back in carbs and see if it comes back necessarily isn't always, you know, the answer, especially if a patient has insulin resistance, right? Because I have PCOS patients who don't have periods, but their problem is insulin resistance. So um, it's very patient specific and you have to test and you have to see, you know, what are the hormones that we have and what are the levels to really determine, you know, what the, what the root of action is. Now, one thing I have seen in the carnivore world um, is I have seen some carnivore people um, lose their period due to eating so much protein and not eating enough fat in the diet. And so mm. here, um, not necessarily adding carbs back in, but they're just not even, you know, eating enough dietary fat to make, because estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, they're made from cholesterol, right? They're made from fat. So you either get that from dietary fat or you get that from body fat to make those, to make those hormones. And so I have seen, you know, when you eliminate an entire macronutrient like carbs and you're just eating protein and fat, I I do think that women um, need to look at, you know, what they're, what they're consuming, especially if your period is gone. The period is definitely a vital sign that you need to pay attention to. Yeah. So for women, what do you think is adequate protein and fat intake? That's a great question. So, you know, when I'm looking at a woman and her body composition, what's crazy, right, is we always focus on body fat and we say a woman should be at this BMI or this body fat percentage, but we never talk about how much muscle a woman should have. And that's Mm -hmm. always the question I'm thinking of when I'm looking at a woman is like, what is her 
what is her lean body mass, you know, percentage. And I think protein is the macronutrient that women really, really need to focus on because it's, it's one of the keys to maintaining lean body mass and maintaining good body composition and maintaining satiety. I find that women that consume adequate amount of, you know, an adequate amount of protein tend to be much more successful. Mm-hmm. And women just aren't used to eating meat like men are. Um, when I talk about carnivore diet, men are like, yeah, let's do it. Let's have steak for every meal. <laughs> but women just like don't seem to buy into it, you know, quite as much. But mm-hmm. when I'm when I talk to women about how much protein to consume, you know, we do we look at recommended daily values and that women, you know, should consume like um, you know, maybe on the lowest end. Um I because I push my patients and my clients to do more resistance training and things like that. Like I personally try to eat a, a, a gram per pound. So I weigh about 160 pounds. My goal usually is about 160. Now that's way above the threshold of like standard ketogenic diet. Um, but that's where I've, you know, found the most success. I think for most women, I try to simplify it. You know, women are, not most of my patients aren't measuring their chicken on a food scale. So what I do is I try to say, you need to eat 30 to 50 grams of protein in two different meals, right? Or if they're eating three meals, then I break it up. And that's how I try to give them a visual. You know, a deck of cards is like four ounces and you should be eating for most of my patients, at least six ounces of meat with each meal. Mm-hmm. That's like a, a deck and a half of cards. And then when we look at fat, um, I never like women to eat. You need to be eating at least a one-to-one ratio of fat. And a lot of times it's a two-to-one ratio for women. So if they're truly ketogenic, they're not eating carbs. I always say you know, for when we're looking at like, let's say a ketogenic diet versus paleo diet. Um, I think there are people who can eat a balanced amount of carbs and fat that are very insulin sensitive, but for most people, they almost have to pick which horse to ride. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's people that can eat high carb and low fat and have good health. I mean, there are yeah. some, but not a lot. And then for a lot of my patients, it's lower carbon, higher fat. So, but you just have to figure out, you know, like I said, which horse you're going to ride. Cause we know the combination of high fat and high carb is what, what causes most of the um, diseases that we, that we see in modern society. So, but protein is the one that we never sacrifice unless you truly need therapeutic ketosis, unless you are a child with epilepsy that must maintain a ketone level of three, or you'll have a seizure. (laughs) I think most people would benefit from eating more protein than a standard ketogenic diet, which is like 20%. So I like women to eat, you know, even upwards of 30, 40% of their calories from protein. Yeah, I'm on that team for sure. I'm definitely team high protein. And I feel like most of the clients I work with, they're all underrating protein. Um, and I, I'm curious when when it goes into the carnivore space, does that do those recommendations shift? Because you were talking about how you feel like a lot of women are under eating fat actually, who have um it like their periods are irregular missing. Yeah, yeah. So I think you have to be really cautious when you are you know, eliminating carbs altogether and you're just going to, you know, a carnivore diet, if you're eating, you know, ribeyes every day, you're probably getting, you know, a good amount of fat, right? Because that's a very fatty cut of, of steak. But if you have a woman that's like eating leaner cuts of meat or she's eating chicken and fish and she's not adding additional fat sources, right? Because if you're technically carnivore, right, you're not putting macadamia nuts on your plate, you're not putting avocado on your plate. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen some women that I just, they're consuming boatloads of protein, which is great, but they're just not getting a lot of, you know, good dietary fat in there. And so I think that's what women need to be real cautious about in the carnivore space. And I've seen it, I've, you know, I've worked with clients that are carnivore and, um, that tends to be, tends to be an issue. And, 
and sometimes it means adding, you know, I think, you know, Paul Saladino and I have debated this. I think, you know, when ancestrally, when you think about women, right, like men went out and killed the buffalo and women foraged for berries and things like that. And I don't, you know, they ate 10 to 15% sometimes of their calories and carbohydrates. So to to think that everybody in America can find, you know, perfect health by eating zero carb, I don't think is the answer. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, eating some carbs is fine if your gut can tolerate small amounts of plants and berries and nuts and seeds. You know, I think that's, I think that's fine. And that's why I've kind of settled on a, what I call a carnivore-ish diet. Um, it just works for me socially. Um, it's palatable for me and it's a way to, you know, get a little bit of a variety, but I do get most of my nutrients from animal, animal nutrient dense food. Yeah. So why do you lean more towards a carnivore ish versus a a ketogenic approach? Like, have you, do you feel better that way? What, what have you noticed? Yeah. So I was ketogenic, um, about two years and I went carnivore, let's see, November of Oh, it's been what, 2018? Yeah. So November of 2018, my husband and I were like, listen, let's try the carnivore diet. We're going to try it for 30 days. And after about day, it was like day 14, I was like really bored with the texture of meat. I was just like, <laughs> I want something like a, I want a crunchy salad or something. I mean, I felt great. I felt great. I, I got very lean. Um, but I think it's because your food choices are limited, right? So you, yeah. you're not eating like keto treats and snacks and things like that. I, I call carnivore diet like keto for dummies because you can't <laughs> screw it up. It's like just eat meat and eggs and right. But I found now I've kind of settled into this way of eating. And for me, I live a very busy lifestyle. So at the beginning of the week, I prep protein. I make sure that we have steak and we have salmon and we have eggs in the fridge. And if I sit down for a meal and all I eat is a big bowl of ground beef and I can't find veggies, then I don't fuss about it. Right. But, um, I mean, in a perfect world, I'd have all that prepped, but it's just what's worked for us. And I do feel better. And I also get good amounts of protein that way. I think one of the biggest problems that I see with women who like go ketogenic is they get so wrapped up in trying to take their bad habits and just make them keto versions. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. They're like on Pinterest and they have these like <laughs> fancy keto recipes and most of them are high fat and they're not high protein. And so, you know, that's where people kind of just have to be, you know, cautious. You can't just eat cheese and butter and things like that and think that you're going to find optimal metabolic health. So kind of carnivore-ish, I think is, is just kind of a sweet spot for me. And, um, it's what works. And I tell people, be your own expert, find what works for you, because if you're, if you're not going to do it, it's not going to work. So it's just, it's just what works best for us. And, um, we've never looked back. Yeah. I eat similarly. I tell people I'm 95% carnivore. Cause I'm just, I mostly eat meat. And then just, if I'm craving something else, I have something else. Um, and it's way easier for me, but I'm curious, is there anyone who you would say you would not recommend carnivore to? You know, if you have good insulin sensitivity, you know, you may not need it. I don't know that there's anyone that can't do it. I mean, there are definitely exclusions to a ketogenic diet, right? If you have like glycogen storage disease, but I don't think there's anyone that can't try it. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you know, my patients that have gut issues, some of them really need it. But I I think that long term, I think it's hard to be like, super strict and dogmatic about it. And I think, you know, I don't ever want my patients to feel like, 
um, I think that's one of the biggest concerns of patients is they're like, well, people, you know, the rest of my household doesn't eat this way, or how do I go to family Christmas? And so I think socially, it's hard for people to be that restrictive, whereas keto gives them a little bit, you know, more variety and more leeway. But no, I don't think there's anyone that really can't, you know, try it. And I tell people, listen, try it for 14 days. You know, you don't know until you try it. Yeah. I get a lot of questions from my audience saying, you know, is carnivore going to screw up my hormones long-term? Like I'm nervous about it for women long-term and also a lot of questions about thyroid. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about like how the thyroid is affected by carbohydrate intake. Right. Great question. So, um, First of all, insulin resistance and estrogen dominance is really bad for your thyroid. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that are bad for your thyroid, but what will happen um, on a ketogenic diet, which includes carnivore diet, right? Because it's, it's still um, ketogenic, is we almost always do see a reduction in the free T3 levels. So thyroid, let's talk about thyroid for just a second. You have a hormone that is secreted from the brain called thyroid stimulating hormone. And that um, stimulates your thyroid gland to make thyroid hormone. And there's T4 and T3. And T4 is the one that is mainly excreted. And then it gets converted into T3 in the peripheral tissues. And T3 is the active thyroid hormone. When we look at what happens on a ketogenic diet, you know, Dr. Finney and Dr. Volick have published studies on patients on ketogenic diets, and they have looked at their thyroid function and across all of these studies, no patient has ever developed overt hypothyroidism. Now, they have shown a decrease in the T3 level in these patients, which you would, some people would look at and say, well, there you go. Look, their thyroid function's gone down. Well, what really happens in your body is if your thyroid function goes down, if the body senses that there's low thyroid, it will increase the TSH hormone, the thyroid stimulating hormone to make more thyroid hormone. And what we, don't, what we don't see in any of these studies is we don't see a concomitant rise in the TSH. So the T3 may go down slightly, but the TSH doesn't go up. And I've seen this clinically. And the theory is that just like you increase insulin sensitivity, you're essentially increasing thyroid sensitivity at the level of the tissue. And um, even in the patients where I've seen free T3 levels of like 2.3 or even 2.2, none of them have hypothyroidism symptoms. So, I'll, you know, so that's one thing is that they need to be, you know, aware of. Um, I myself actually had hypothyroidism after my first pregnancy and was on thyroid replacement through my second two pregnancies. And then after I went ketogenic, I um, came off of my medication and I've had completely normal thyroid function and I've been ketogenic over three years now. So, I mean, I'm, I've had a history of it um, myself and, and now it's normal. Um, so I can tell you that my, my thyroid function has been, been completely fine. And when I check patients that, you know, who are, who are concerned about this, we check baseline thyroid levels and then, you know, we intermittently recheck and see where things are at. There's a lot of other things that affect your thyroid. Like I said, um, if you have estrogen dominance, if you're on birth control pills, that can really drag on your thyroid. So that's one thing that women need to hear is birth control combined um, hormonal contraception is not good for your thyroid gland. <laughs> um, so there's lots of other things that affect it too, but there's, there's also things that we need to do to support our thyroid health. And that's making sure that we're getting the vitamins and minerals that our thyroid needs to function. And those are things like zinc and selenium and vitamin D and C. And, you know, we can support our thyroid in lots of different ways. And 
and you don't need excessive amounts of carbs to make your thyroid work. Yeah. I think it's hard because when you see people on social media or the internet saying, you know, I went low carb and it messed up my thyroid or lost my period. It's just hard to know if it, yeah, was it that or was it like you were eating too few calories? You weren't eating enough fat there. I feel like there's so many confounding variables going on. I don't know if you find that too in your practice. (laughs) Oh, a hundred percent. I have like, you know, every patient comes in with like a story. Like I had a friend who X, Y, Z, or like (laughs) I saw this on Facebook and Mm -hmm. um, those things are very compelling, right? It's like, oh my gosh. And and everybody, whatever their belief system is, will, you know, just jump on to those stories and things like that. And so just remember that we're all individuals and we all, our bodies respond in different ways and, and we're built from different DNA and what works for your friends might not work for you. Um, which is why I think everybody should, like I said, be their own expert. Yeah. Speaking of which, I really wanted to talk to you about your experiments with your continuous glucose monitor. Because I know you were like trying different things out using that. And I would love for you to share a little bit about um, some of your findings from experimenting with that. Yeah. So first of all, I'm a huge fan of continuous glucose monitoring. I've actually had my monitor off for a couple of weeks because I had to do some filming and I'm, I'm ready to put it back on. I'm super <laughs> excited. It's super addicting. I think that the ability to, I think if every person in America had the ability to see what was happening with their blood sugars, like in real time, it's very eye-opening. And from a behavioral modification standpoint, what I've seen in clinic is by putting them on patients, um, it really opens their eyes to not only what's happening with their blood sugars, but how they're feeling, you know, mm-hmm. when they can see that huge spike and that huge drop and they correlate that with how crappy they feel you know, or how good they feel when their blood sugar is very stable. It really, really, really helps elicit behavior change. But what I did was I said, I'm going to put this on and just see what's happening, right? I'm ketogenic. So I wasn't expecting like anything, you know, miraculous, right? I I shouldn't say anything crazy, but then when I put it on, I thought now I'm going to test my limits. And so I started, you know, testing different keto products. And I really just wanted to kind of bring transparency to followers and patients about, you know, some of these products maybe aren't as like, ketogenic as you would like to believe. Yeah. And so then I kind of got this crazy idea that I was like, you know, I was watching all these people on Instagram fighting about carnivore and plant-based and vegan and right. Everyone's just like slinging mud back and forth. And at the end of the day, I mean, I think no matter what camp you, you live in and believe in is that we all agree that eating real whole foods is better, right? Than eating anything that's been processed or ultra processed. And so, so, okay. So now you have these two camps, right? You have this like whole food vegan camp and you have these carnivore people and they're, you know, they both think that it's their way is the best way to health. And I, and so I thought, you know, you guys are all missing the point. (laughs) You're all missing the point. The point is that glycemic variability matters, right? Because if you're very insulin resistant, you know, you can still be eating a whole food plant-based diet and you could still be eating like boatloads of carbs and not enough protein. And so, you know, at the end of the day, no matter what kind of diet you eat, I think that you should be focusing on metabolic health and metabolic health is determined by your glycemic variability. So what I did was I was like, okay, I eat carnivore and I'm going to show people what it does, you know, over a 24 hour period. And then I'm going to eat ketogenic I'm going to show people what that looks like. And then I decided to eat this whole food vegan diet and, and to show people what that did. 
And it was eye-opening, you know, to look at this graph of, of carnivore, which was just kind of this very flat, undulating line. My blood sugar was like basically, you know, 70 to 90, like all day long. And I feel amazing. Right. And then I did this whole food vegan and I had like oats and I had tons of fruit and I wasn't eating anything processed. It was, it was all like, you know, real whole foods, but my blood sugar was like all over the place. And one of the times I had oats uh, with some raw honey and I think bananas, I can't remember. And it was like, it took five hours for my blood sugars to normalize. (laughs) And, you know, I'm actually quite insulin, more insulin sensitive right now than I used to be. But, and I've, I've started to add um, some more targeted carbs in and things like that. And I was talking to Ben Bickman about this because one of the arguments, you know, people got on social media and they're like, well, you're not used to eating carbs and that's why your blood sugar went crazy. Well, even on the third day, you know, Dr. Bickman said, you know, even by 24 hours, your, your pancreas is going to start to really, you know, upregulate insulin. And, and even by the third day, my blood sugars were all over the place. So, I, you know, I wasn't attacking anybody who's eating vegan or plant-based or whatever it is, but I was just showing people why I don't eat that way. Um, mm. I did not feel well those days. I had like a horrible headache. My blood sugar was bouncing all around. And it, you know, I just think it's so eye-opening when you talk about glycemic variability. It, you know, it's an argument for people who I have a very strong, I have a lot of DNA and genes in my body for insulin resistance. And so I have to eat, you know, more keto carnivore. And yeah. um, I think that if people put CGMs on, <laughs> their eyes would be wide open. I promise that my patients love it. They could, they literally love their continuous glucose monitors. The hardest part is getting you know, insurance coverage and, and getting them affordable um, monitors to use. But I would love if I could put them on all my pregnant patients, I would just put them on everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think if you, I think if everybody even just for 10 to 14 days could wear one, um, it's very, it's very educational. Yeah. I think it's so interesting. And I think also to your point, most people just aren't aware of the fact that their blood sugar is related to like their mood and how they're feeling. And I know a lot of people who eat more more plant-based and they tell me they feel amazing. And I'm like, that's great. And then I kind of observe their behavior and they're moody all day. They're hangry. Like they're like, I have a headache and they don't connect that to the fact that their blood sugar is all over the place. So I think that the awareness is, is everything. (laughs) Yeah. I've had patients that are like, what's crazy is what I thought was anxiety was actually my blood sugar is like going super high or super low, you know? Yeah. Um, it's it's just eye opening, and I I know what they're talking about because I had one um, experience with my CGM. I don't know what it was. I think I actually I think it was literally like ice cream or something. I tried, and my blood sugar went to like the one seventies. And when it's like in the one fifties, one sixties, one seventies, I I had like this horrid anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that is those counter regulatory hormones, right? Because your body wants your body wants harmony. It wants peace. It wants your blood sugar to just kind of be at the same level all the time. Your body wasn't designed to have blood sugars bouncing up and down. So it will constantly, if it goes up, it secretes hormones to bring it down. If it goes down, it secretes hormones to bring it up. And so those feelings of anxiety or um, nausea or hunger or whatever those symptoms are, it's it's a result of those counter-regulatory hormones. Yeah. Also, what was the most interesting thing you found when you were testing different keto products? Well. I think the the 
the exposure that I made <laughs> testing keto products is that you know patients can really get into trouble counting net carbs versus total carbs because a lot of the keto products add either fibers or sugar alcohols in them to really drive the net carbs down. Yeah. And some of these things, um, especially some of these fibers can sometimes spike your blood sugars or there'll be like weird names for things like, you know, tapioca starch or, um, I, I won't call any products out on the podcast, but, um, mm-hmm. I mean, there are some products out there that, that probably are not, you know, ideal. And that's when I, that's why I always tell people, listen, the longer the ingredient list, I don't care if it says keto on the front, the longer the ingredient list is on that product, the more likely you are to get yourself into trouble. You know, because yeah. things like chicken and steak and broccoli, those are ingredients. They don't have ingredient lists. And so that's, you know, it, that's the take-home message that people need to hear is, you know, I tested lots of different things and there are some things that were amazing. I mean, I, it was great. I was like, oh, I can eat this as pizza crust and I can eat this <laughs> for dessert and, you know, whatever. But um, there are some fantastic products out there that did not budge the CGM at all. Yeah. Um, but, but there are some that are a little bit sketchy and that's the hardest part as a, as a consumer. If you don't have a monitor on, like you don't know what's going on. Yeah. I think also like just the fact that everyone responds differently. Like I've tested myself with different types of whole food carbohydrates, like different types of squashes, sweet potatoes and berries. And like, I respond differently to all of those compared to other people. So I think there's a lot of value in testing that for yourself for sure. Yeah. hundred percent. I also wanted to talk about your, you redid one of the experiments in uh, uh, Game Changers. I almost forgot what it was called. Oh. I tried to repress it. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell, tell my audience a little bit about that, that experiment where you tested your, your blood, you like centrifuge your blood. Right? Yeah. Well, everyone, yeah, everyone was like, you got to watch this Game Changers. And I, I literally got, I don't know, 20 minutes in and I was like, oh, I just can't watch this anymore. But I, I saw the part where they, did this experiment where they gave these people burritos, right? And one has meat in it and one has uh, just veggies in it. And they drew the blood and they were just showing that basically when you eat these animal products, right, that you have cloudy serum. And basically what they're showing is that there's red blood cells in the bottom when you centrifuge it. And then on top, you have this kind of straw colored fluid, which is your serum. Now, when you eat fat, it's very normal to see fat in the bloodstream, right? Right after you eat. Mm-hmm. But what you don't want is you don't want that fat hanging around in the bloodstream for long periods of time. Now, right, your body has two fuel sources, carbs and fat. So in the presence of just eating carbs or just eating fat, your body is pretty good at clearing that. But if you eat high carb and high fat together, the fat is more likely to hang around. So as I'm watching this experiment, right, I'm a scientist. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Of course, there's fat in that serum, he just had a tortilla with like a fatty burrito, right? That's like standard American (laughs) diet. He just had a standard American diet burrito. That's not, you're missing the point of people who are ketogenic or carnivore. And so I said, listen, I'm going to repeat this experiment. I'm going to have bacon and eggs, which would be like keto carnivore. And then I'm going to eat a vegan burrito, but I'm going to add the equivalent amount of fat that's in the bacon and the eggs, right? Mm -hmm. So now we have equal fat, but now the vegan burrito has the carbs in it. And so I basically did the same experiment they did just the opposite way and showed exactly what they showed. When you eat carbs and fat together, there is fat that hangs around in the serum. So like when I ate bacon and eggs, my serum was totally clear. When I had the vegan burrito, which had 50, no, so it had 60 grams of fat with coconut oil and avocado and my serum was cloudy. 
So of course that upset a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, it's just an end of one experiment, but if you want to like show that on Netflix as like science, then we'll, um, you know, and, and I wasn't the only one that did it. There's been two or three other people that have repeated the same um, experiment and shown, shown the exact same thing. And so what people need to know is, like I said, you have to pick which horse to ride. You can't have high carbs and high fat. So it's one or the other. Yeah. I mean, that movie has been ruffling a lot of feathers and I have a hard time with it. And I feel like more and more people, random people I meet, they're like, well, I heard in the game changers. Did you see that experiment? And it's just really hard to kind of reason with people unless you're willing to sit down and have an hour long conversation, I feel like. But I love that you do all of these experiments. What has been the favorite thing like that you've tried? I mean, I'm really, I really do love the CGM monitoring. And the reason I love it is because anybody that's out there listening and watching can probably get access to one. Mm -hmm. And I think it's literally just like the one thing that can teach you so much about your own body. Um, You know, I just love it. I have a science brain. I like, um, like I said, I like walking the walk and talking the talk and I'll always try something before my patients. I will never ask my patients to do something. I'm not willing to try myself. So um, I'm always (laughs) in the name of science. Now I'm not as brave as Ryan Lowry. He did a 30 day vegan experiment recently. I saw that. (laughs) <laughs> is really seeing some body comp testing and, and lab testing, which will be really cool to see. Um, I mean, I already probably know what it's going to show that he lost muscle and <laughs> yeah. things like that. So um, yeah, but no, bless Ryan's heart for doing that. <laughs> yeah. I watched the first, the first part and he had lost muscle and gained body fat and he looked so upset. Like he was like, why did I bother going to the gym every day? <laughs> I felt no. really bad. Yeah. It's sad, but it's, I mean, I think it's really great that so many respected people in the community are doing these to show people the other side and just helps ease some people's minds. So I love that you do that. And I, I, I did definitely want to talk to you a bit about birth control options since you are an OBGYN. And this is something that I think a lot of people in the health space are stressed out about kind of, because I think a lot of women now like, you know, understand some of the negative effects of hormonal birth control, but they don't really know what to do. And so I would love for you to maybe share how how you have that conversation with your patients about birth control. Yeah. So I am always about women's reproductive rights. So, you know, birth control has its place in society, the ability Mm -hmm. to plan when we want to be pregnant and when we don't want to be pregnant um, is a, is an amazing, you know, option that we have in this day and age. Now, with that being said, different forms of birth control come with side effects. So it's not totally benign. So when I talk to patients about birth control, I kind of talk about three different categories. So the first category is non-hormonal birth control. So this is everything from natural family planning, which is like tracking your cycles, um, you know, testing your basal body temperature. It also includes barrier methods like condoms and diaphragms and spermicides and that were withdrawal methods. And then it also does include an IUD called the Paragard or Copper IUD, which is a non-hormonal um, form of birth control. Now that particular IUD, although it's popular for being non-hormonal, um, it does contain copper and it does release copper ions into the body and copper can compete for zinc in the body. And if you have a zinc deficiency and you get a copper IUD like Paragard, it can cause excessive bleeding um, and it can exacerbate your zinc deficiency. So that's one thing you have to keep in mind with the with the Paragard or the copper IUD. And then the second um, kind of category that I talk about is what I call combined hormonal contraception. So these are either 
oral pills, patches that are placed on the skin or vaginal rings. And there's um, actually a brand new vaginal ring that just came to market called Anavera, which is a 12-month vaginal ring. But basically, all of these contain both estrogen and progesterone. So they, they usually contain ethanol, estradiol, and then some form of progesterone. And it is a synthetic progesterone. And the progesterones that are in them, some of them are very androgenic, meaning they can cause problems like acne, and some of them are anti-androgenic, meaning they're FDA approved to treat hormonal acne. So it depends what your doctor is prescribing you. But the biggest problem with um, this category is that combined hormonal contraception that is taken orally, meaning a birth control pill that you swallow, um, when you put things like that down the GI tract, they do cause micronutrient depletions in the body. So the birth control pill is well, um, it's well documented that it causes deficiencies um, in, in B vitamins, zinc, selenium, magnesium. It does cause oxidative stress, so it can deplete your vitamin C and E. Um, and estrogen in the body has to be metabolized. So you have to be metabolizing your estrogen well to clear it out of your system. This is why a lot of women just feel kind of like what I call gross. <laughs> mm -hmm. I just feel like so icky when they take birth control pills. And I have an amazing answer for that <laughs> because I do have some patients that like to take birth control pills. I've been working with a company called Even Health that has um, made a supplement called The Other Pill, which is a nutrient supplement that is designed for women um, taking combined hormonal contraceptives and the really cool part, and this is like groundbreaking information that I'm releasing on your podcast, is that I did a clinical trial in my clinic with women taking um, birth control pills with this supplement. And um, over 90 days of use, we saw 88% improvement in depression symptoms, a 75% improvement in anxiety, 75% improvement in acne, and 82% improvement in weight. Wow. <laughs> so um, I've actually been mind blown the results with that. So just know that if you like the pill and you want to take the pill and you're terrified of this micronutrient issue, there is a good answer for you. But this group of birth control, this combined group does tend to come with the most amount of side effects because it's two different hormones and it's basically turning off your system. One huge misconception that I see in, in the, um, uh, out in the world is that girls think that when they take the pill, they're actually getting a period. So they say like, oh yeah, my period's so much better on the pill. Mm -hmm. That is not a real period. That is that is not a period. That is not a cycle. That is not your body's menstrual cycle. That is literally a withdrawal bleed from you stopping the medicine for any certain amount of days. So just know that like when a doctor gives you, if you're, if you're taking birth control, you should be taking it for birth control. <laughs> yeah. If you are, if you have been given a pill to like, quote unquote, fix your period or like treat your PCOS or whatever, like it's not treating the real problem. It's just like putting a bandaid on it. So that's my, my biggest issue is that birth control should be used for birth control. And then the third kind of class of birth control is what I call long acting reversible contraception. And long acting reversible contraception is, is IUDs that contain progesterone. Like I said, there is that non-hormonal one or injections of progesterone like Depo-Provera or an, another implantable device that goes in the arm called Nexplanon. And um, these all come with, you know, kind of different nuances, but they're just progesterone only, so they don't contain estrogen. And the IUDs are fast becoming probably the most commonly prescribed form of birth control. And 
the reason a lot of women like the progesterone IUDs is because we see a pretty significant reduction in, in menstrual flow at, at, at three months and at six months. And they're great forms of birth control. So they don't, there's no user error involved, right? You can't mm-hmm. like forget to take it or change it or move it or whatever. And so because they're implantable devices, the, the efficacy is super high with them. Do you have like specific yeah, questions? I, yeah, I have a few, answer it. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I have some follow-up questions with that. Thank you for that explanation. That was really helpful. So, well, let me go back to the copper IUD. So you were saying it can cause basically an imbalance in like copper to zinc ratios. So, mm-hmm. but if somebody, if somebody has plenty of zinc, they don't have, they're not deficient in zinc. Are there any risks to that? Yeah, no. I mean, otherwise, it's a great you know form of birth control if you're using it for contraception. People who have IUDs, it doesn't protect against sexually transmitted infections. And if you get a pelvic infection with an IUD, it increases the risk of getting an infection higher up inside the uterus in the fallopian tubes. Mm-hmm. And you know, of course, IUDs can get misplaced or malpositioned. Misplaced, that's a bad word. Malpositioned you know, within the <laughs> uterus. They can migrate into the wall of the uterus, or if they're inserted incorrectly, they can end up inside the abdomen. So it is a device that is a foreign body. Um, there is a slight um, increase in um, bacterial vaginosis infections involved with IUDs because of the, because it is a foreign body and it can change the microbiome of the, of the vagina. You know, it's not super well studied, but we do know that there's a slight increased risk of vaginitis with IUDs. But otherwise, it's a you know great form of of non hormonal birth control. Okay, I have no science behind this, but I just always wonder you know, especially with more and more women talking about breast implant illness, part of me wonders if people with more sensitive bodies can develop like autoimmune disease with, with an IUD. Yeah. I mean, it's a great thought because, um, you know, there's copper, there's plastics inside of it. You know, you've got the strings, you've got the, the progesterone ones that's secreted from like, like a silicone body on the IUD. I mean, I think it's, I think it's an interesting thought to think about. We do know the user satisfaction rates are super high and mm-hmm. the the Paragard is a 10-year IUD. The progesterone IUDs are anywhere from like three to six years, depending on which one you're using. It's not like a breast implant where you're leaving it in there forever, you know, essentially yeah. at some point they're typically getting removed. But I, I mean, I have had patients that have had very strange symptoms, you know, in which we've decided to remove the IUD, you know, for that reason. And um, I, I don't think it's, I don't think that answer is probably no. I think yeah. there probably are just like a lot of things, you know, very well susceptible individuals. Yeah. It's just, it's interesting. I'm just, I always wonder, if, I mean, I guess we'll see in the future what comes out, right? Right. So moving to the birth control pill. Well, first of all, the other pill, that's what you said it was called. That yes. That's very exciting. Yeah. Where do people get that? So you can go to Even Health. Um, Even Health has a website. You can mm-hmm. order it right on there, and you can set it up where they just like ship you your you know supplement every month for as long as you're on the birth control pill. We've been you know trying to work with companies that do um, you know that ship prescription medications to your house to like it would be great if I could wave my magical wand and we bundled it you know so you got like your pills and your supplement together, but. Um, yes, if there are women out there that like their pill and don't feel great, I really highly recommend uh, looking into um, the other pill. Okay, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And I think the, my question is, so that covers kind of the macronutrient depletion, but aren't there other risks to the pill? Like what about the effect on, on your gut? Yeah, yeah. So 
when I was talking about you, estrogen is like a use it and lose it, right? Mm -hmm. So when you metabolize estrogen in the liver, it actually gets packaged up and it gets excreted in the bile and it goes down and you basically excrete estrogen through your feces or through your urine. So if Mm -hmm. you don't have a good gut, if you don't clear, you know, things from your gut well, or you don't package up the estrogen the way it's supposed to be packaged, it could be contributing to like estrogen dominance if you're not getting rid of the estrogen. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different options for people. I think they get overwhelmed, but that was a very helpful breakdown. Um, So thank you. Thank you for that. And the last thing I really wanted to cover with you is your, your approach with exercise. And I know you're big into strength training or resistance training. And I would love for you to kind of pitch to my audience why they should focus more on that. <laughs> yeah. So when you're thinking, you know, I use the word optimal metabolic health earlier. And if you want to hedge your bets against the things that are most likely to kill you or make your life very miserable, which are cancer, cardiovascular disease, and neurological diseases, you want to maintain a lot of muscle. Muscle is a metabolic organ. It is the organ of longevity. And if you are 20, 30, 40 years old listening right now, like you are in your prime of muscle building. And muscle building requires two things. It requires that you eat adequate protein, which is why eating kind of a carnivore-ish diet works great for that. And then you need to stimulate your muscles. So your brain actually has to tell your bicep that you still need it. And so resistance training, women really have to step back and they have to get away from this cardio obsession (laughs) and like running on treadmills. I'm not saying cardio is bad. I say all movement is good movement. But if women in the prime of their life can focus on resistance training and focus on building muscle, because as you age, it becomes harder and you're more likely to lose your muscle faster, um, especially after menopause. So if you, you know, they're always worried about like, I'm going to look too manly or I'm going to get bulky or whatever it is, um, throw that out with the trash because it is very genetic, like how big your muscles are going to be. And you're not taking like performance enhancing drugs. Okay. Um, just embrace your body. Your body will fit better in its clothes. You will feel better. You will feel stronger. And women should not be afraid of weightlifting and building muscle. Yes. And so how have you always had that approach or did you ever go through a cardio phase? Oh, I definitely went through a cardio phase. I um, was a college athlete and I was a two-time lifter of the year. And when I was at Nebraska, I had like giant quad muscle. I still do. I think it's very genetic. Like it's just very genetic. I just have large quads. And I had like people, I don't, I mean, yeah, no, they made fun of me. I mean, they're like, geez, like, you know, like guy football players be like, oh, your quads are bigger than mine. And I was like super, super self-conscious about it. And literally when I left Nebraska, I was like, I never want to weightlift again. I was Mm -hmm. just like, totally, uh, I was like, oh, I was a little burnout from athletics. But so I went to medical school. I did a lot of cardio, did a little stint with P90X um, in medical school. And then during my pregnancies, when I got back into the gym in my first pregnancy, I mean, I was totally just like Stairmaster elliptical person. Mm -hmm. And um when I found out I had prediabetes and I started to get back into the gym, I started by doing pure bar. It was kind of like the best thing for my postpartum body. And it really was only about two years ago when I was like, okay, you have got, you have to lift weights. Like you have to lift weights again. And now it feels so good. And now I like, I'm, 
I'm, I'm happy I did it. And, and my body composition is, is wonderful. And I'm part of my message, like to the world is like, women should not be like, now I talk about it all the time. Like got to keep my brains bigger than my quads. Um, <laughs> because I just like, I, and I have three daughters. So now for me, I'm like, okay, listen, like you need to show women that it's okay, like to have muscles and mm-hmm. that equals health. Like that equals health. Yeah. I love that. I'm curious. How did your P90X stint go? No, <laughs> uh, you know what? Like I didn't mind P90X. I think the yoga, the yoga video, I wasn't too into that, but now my husband and I used to like make fun of the, uh, the, I think my husband can quote like a bunch of the lines that, <laughs> that guy says. <laughs> I mean, it's a great workout. <laughs> That's a amazing. Great workout. So now what is your routine like? So now my routine is resistance training. Um, about four to five times per week, but I incorporate it with, with high intensity interval training. So like I work my legs twice a week and my arms twice a week. And then like the other two days might be more of like a hit circuit, but then it incorporates, you know, dumbbells or kettlebells or things like that. And things that really push my muscles. I, mm-hmm. it's very rare for me. I might get on this, the, the, um, stair mill, the, what do you, I don't know. The Stairmaster? Stair yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I might get on there, but even if I get on there, I'm doing, um, I'm doing like intervals. Like, you know, I'm hot, like it is hard. Like and yeah. I'm huffing and puffing, like none of this, like just run on a treadmill for 45 minutes stuff. Um, if I, if I get on a piece of cardio equipment, it's because I'm doing interval training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think for, well, I know some people love cardio. I get bored, so I, I can't do it, but <laughs> Yeah, I've ran, I've trained for two half marathons. I ran two half marathons and like, literally it's so boring. Like it's so boring. I can't do it. I just can't do it. <laughs> what made you, what made you do those? Um, it was, I, let's see, I ran one of them. I think after my second daughter, it was because of postpartum. I was like, mm-hmm. I have to get rid of this like fat. Like I was, you know, postpartum and I was done breastfeeding. And so I thought, okay. I mean, just like every other woman, okay. I just got to start running. Right. If I run like an hour a day, like this weight has to come off. And it's so funny now to look back at those pictures of when I ran the half marathons, like I didn't even look that in shape, you know, I just like yeah. ran 13 miles and like, I don't even look like I'm not in shape. And so, um, fat is lost in the kiss- kitchen muscles gained in the gym. So, I mean, yes. you can run as many miles as you want, but if you don't have your diet, right. Good luck. <laughs> very, very true. I, I also am kind of curious, like, so I, you are going to compete for Mrs. Nebraska, right? Yes. Yes. It's coming up April 4th. So what is all involved in preparing for that? So it kind of happened on a whim. (laughs) I feel like, so I um, am running for Mrs. Nebraska. It involves um, an interview. It involves a swimsuit competition and an evening gown competition. I am doing it because I want to show people that you can be smart and you can have muscles and you can still, I've never, this is, this is like out of my box for anyone listening. I have never in my entire life Mm -hmm. (laughs) been in a beauty pageant. I've never done this before. This is just like, okay, let's do something that scares you. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm super excited. If I win Mrs. Nebraska, I'll go on to compete at Mrs. America, which is in Las Vegas in August. Um, and so it's super exciting. We'll see what happens. I'm just blessed at the opportunity to be able to do it. And we'll, see where it goes. I'm so excited. How, how do we support you? 
well, anybody that's low, anybody that's local. Well, I mean, I guess anybody in the world could come, yeah. but <laughs> anybody that's local to Omaha that wants to come, it's a public event. It's on April 4th. Um, I love all the social media. Love you guys are always just so, so kind and so nice. And if I make it to Mrs. America, I mean, who doesn't want to go to Las Vegas? Yeah, <laughs> so, true. Yeah. Is it on TV? Um, I'm sure the Mrs. America one is televised, broadcasted in some way, shape or form. Um, it's done in conjunction with the Miss America. So, um, but the Mrs. Nebraska, I don't think is, but we'll see. I don't know if they allow recording. Maybe we'll, we'll record it for the world. <laughs> yeah. Maybe if you can sneak that in, I, I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm curious, but I'm wishing you the best of luck. I think it's so amazing that you're doing that and such a great example for like your daughters too. You know, I think that's so empowering. Like if I saw my mom doing something like that, I would be so pumped and excited. So I'm really excited to see how that goes for you. So congratulations on just putting yourself out there and doing what scares you. Thank you. That's so sweet. I think my daughters might be more excited than I am. <laughs> that's amazing. No, that's so amazing. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Seaman, for sharing all of your knowledge with us. I am sure people are going to listen to this like three times and take notes. So I really appreciate your time. And I know people are going to want to connect with you further. So can you just remind everyone where they can connect with you further and find more from you? Yes, I am on Instagram and Facebook, Dr. Fit and Fabulous. And I do have a website, drfitandfabulous.com. Um, I do online consulting, not very much because I have so many amazing projects that are going on and so I'm trying not to spread myself too thin. But um, I love all of you connecting on social media. So Instagram is probably where I'm most active. And um, I will be speaking at a couple conferences this year. So I love meeting you if I'm ever in your town. Yeah. What conferences are you speaking at? Let's see. We just got done with Keto Summit and Metabolic Health Summit. And then I will be at KetoCon in June. And then I have a couple this fall that haven't um, locked in, but it always it seems like I'm somewhere every month this year. <laughs> awesome. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, everyone can head to your Instagram and I'm sure you'll announce it on there and they can come find yes, you. Yes, for sure. For sure. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again, Dr. Seaman. It was so much fun chatting with you and I really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. Huge thank you to Dr. Jamie Seaman for coming on the podcast and sharing so much incredible information. I'm sure you got a lot out of that and you probably took a lot of notes. Those are the best episodes, in my opinion. If you want more from her, you can head on over to Instagram and look her up at Dr. Fit and Fabulous. And if you enjoyed this show, I would so appreciate it if you took a screenshot and tagged Dr. Seaman, tagged me, tagged Wellness Realness Podcast. That way I can say thank you. It means the world to me when you share the show on social media just to spread the word about the podcast so we can grow our community that way. Don't forget that if you want behind the scenes content related to the podcast and my life, all the juicy information, I have a secret Instagram account or private, should I say? I should say private. It is Wellness Realness Crew, and all you have to do to get access to Wellness Realness Crew is DM a screenshot of your iTunes rating and review to that account. So you go to Wellness Realness Crew, you request to follow, you DM that account with a screenshot of your iTunes rating and review, and then when I get that screenshot, I will accept your request. I've gotten a lot of requests for following, but not not the corresponding screenshot with the iTunes rating and review. So make sure you add that step in if you want to get access. And don't forget, you can always connect with other 
podcast listeners by heading to our Facebook group, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe. That's going to be it for today's episode. Thank you again so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'm sure you did. Have an amazing rest of your day and I will chat with you again next episode. Bye.